Hey, Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She Wrote or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another fabulous episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast and ours, too. I am your co-host, TJ West. And I'm Bridget Keyes. And we're so happy to have you this week for this week's episode, Tough Guys Don't Die. So, Bridget, would you like to give us a brief summary of this episode? Well, it's challenging to do a brief one because I love this episode. She loves this this episode. (laughs) I think this is one of the best episodes in the series. And I know that the writer and executive producer, Peter Fisher, really put his heart and soul into this. uh, Because this episode is the introduction to our character, Harry McGraw, who will be a recurring character on the series. And who, after this episode got his own spinoff show, The Law and Harry McGraw. Um, So this episode just has a lot packed into it to set up his world and establish the character. Um, This episode is about Harry, who's a private investigator. His partner, uh, Archie, is killed, and Harry's investigating who shot him. Mm -hmm. At the same time, Jessica is one of Archie's clients, and she's concerned that it was the research he was doing for her that might have led to his death. So, of course, she also begins investigating. And what's fun about the episode is the way that she and Harry play off each other. Uh, She's the voice of reason, of justice, of brains. He's the brawn. He believes um, that vengeance is better. You know, so we have this sort of masculine-feminine law versus vengeance, law versus order, refined versus crass dichotomy between the two as they're investigating and ultimately we find out that it was um another guy in their office who killed archie um because of some reason that i don't even remember anymore truthfully so he could blackmail another client who was having archie do opposition research on her so she could run a senate campaign Boo, i remember right. and right and find, finds out that she had an abortion she had an abortion pre-row yeah yeah, which is, we can get to that later in the episode, but I was like, whoa, what? They, what, what? what? Yeah, they went there. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what on earth is happening right now? I was like, and uh, well, we could, like I said, we can elaborate on that later. But yeah, it's a great episode. I mean, certainly the thing that stands out most to me as a, as a devotee, as it were, of um, film noir is it's, you know, heavy film noir aesthetic, particularly for the Maltese Falcon. And I did say Falcon, I don't know why, but um it is a lushly captured film noir in the sort of hard-bitten tradition, not necessarily in like the sort of grim tradition that we saw in San Francisco several or Seattle several episodes ago, but more of a fun, hard-bitten, uh, snappy dialogue kind of film noir, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, I mean, this is directly lifted from Hammett's The Maltese Falcon. Um, the, the character's name is Archie Miles, referencing Miles Archer. Uh, in the Maltese Falcon, the idea that he's shot late at night in the office um, and that his partner has to investigate, that's all directly from the Maltese Falcon. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just, it has that great hard-boiled detective novel Uh feel. And that's what makes Harry McGraw such a fun character. And Harry McGraw, of course, is played by Jerry Orbach. Right. 
who this this was one of his first forays into TV. Right. And what always amazes me about the 80s in particular is like, this is what shaped my understanding of film noir. Not this particular episode, but the way this episode plays with the conventions of what noir, noir looks and sounds and feels like. When I, you know, came to grad school, it was this kind of like past, well, what do you call it? Like a pastiche or, you know, a parody, if you will, of film noir that gave me sort of my touchstone. Like it happens a lot in 80s TV, like Garfield did it, like of, I forget, Babes and Bullets or something like Garfield did a very similar kind of hard-boiled thing in this very tradition like the private detective the office the you know oh the private sort of detective with the names on the door mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. in the half moon and then when you come into the office there's the the wooden railing with the swinging gate that leads to the inner office oh my god right. i love that and so i'm convinced that it's actually 80s tv even more than the original noir that has solidified what noir looks like because of these the way these homages work probably just they, for our generation well, I mean, millennials are the only ones that matter now. So, you know, I think that that's part of... Listen, I'm we just... have listeners who are Gen Z uh, and a couple of Gen Xers. We know you're out there. So we just want to tell you we love you too. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious. <laughs> but I do think, like I said, I think that for a certain generation of TV viewers, this is what, you know, yeah. has solidified what they think more is. Agreed. Yeah. So on that note, Teach, I'd like to play a little game. Okay. Okay. So Harry, uh, as our hard-boiled detective... Uh, this is, it's Boston, not New York or San Francisco. So it is a little bit different from film mm. noir in that sense. But he has a very specific vocabulary as our hard-boiled PI. And what I'd like to do is to play a little game now where I'll tell you something that he said in his line of dialogue. And then you have to tell us what it means in like real people's English. Okay, okay, got it. Okay. I do love, I love, I love Jerry Orbach and I love noir dialogue. So hit me. Okay. So, uh... Archie was bird-dogging three cases. It meant he was on the trail of three different cases. Uh, he's going to balance the books. Uh, well, balance the books usually generally means, like, uh, like make sure that all the figures line up, I guess, would be... No, like, specifically, he says he's um, going to find Archie's killer so he can balance the books. Oh, oh, I see. He's going to make sure that... He, basically, like, even the scales of justice, like, get revenge. Yeah. Um, he knows that one of the guys Archie was following, Santini, was dipping into someone else's hot tub. Having an affair. Yeah. Uh, he also says he was catting around. Yeah, well, I mean, I knew that expression from my grandmother using it. So also, like, having lots of, you know, sex. He, uh, Harry doesn't believe in scientific shinola. Oh, well, I mean, you know. Nonsense, basically, like, you know, shit and Shinola. These are, see, these are, I'm familiar with these given, like, that I grew up around old people. So, like, I'm very familiar with these expressions. <laughs> so, poor Harry is supposed to be, like, a, what, 40-year-old guy. And uh, he has this dialogue that makes him seem like he's from totally a different generation. Well, he is. I mean, because he's a holdover from, like, film noir from the 40s. So. Um, okay. You did really great with that. <laughs> I know, I told you, like, I, I'm both a passionate lover of film noir, and I also grew up around old people. It's a perfect combination to get these things right. But I would, I, I love Jerry Orbach. Like, he plays this kind of character He's so great so at So well. And it's, a, and it's a precursor of Lenny Briscoe, of course, uh, of Law and Order. Like, it's very clear that he's already sort of, ca- you know, casting himself in this wonderful mold. And I just love him. I, I think that he is just such an effortlessly, both curmudgeonly but charismatic actor. And I think that this role 
is, you know, his sweet spot. So at this point, Orbach was known for his Broadway work by people who knew theater. Uh, and he was contemplating transitioning into television because he wanted a more stable income. Mm. Uh, so that's why he auditioned for this. And when this went really well and they said, do you want to keep doing the character and do you maybe want to do a spinoff? He was like really interested because he he just thought that television would be a much better career move, mm-hmm. um, which was not common in the 80s. Now yeah. people realize TV's where it's at. It's a steady income. But at the time, that would have been a, much like Lansbury moving from theater to TV. It was kind of seen as a step down. I love this little game that I also like to play in my head of, like, spot the Golden Girls guest star. Like, we have four in this episode. We have both. We have the first and second Glenn O'Briens, which, we of course, do. the first one is the guy who plays Santini. And then there's, obviously, Jerry Orbach. There's also Barbara Babcock, who is the woman who has the abortion, who plays Blanche's sister, Charmaine, author of Vixen, Story of a Woman. And then, of course, there's Father Frank Leahy, who plays Barbara Babcock's husband. So it's a delightful, like, interconnected I'm convinced that we may have, there's a cinematic Golden Girls cinematic universe, also known as also known as 80s TV. Yeah, there is. It's <laughs> 1980s <Jinx>. TV. <laughs> yeah, and of course it's because of his success in this that um, and the this short-lived spinoff, Law and Harry McGraw, which didn't succeed for a lot of reasons. It was mm. shuffled shuffled around the timetable a lot. Um, you know, different time slots. So that was part of it. But, you know, it was because of that that um, producers began to see Orbach as a viable TV actor, which led to him becoming Lenny Briscoe on Law & Order, which he did for, what, 20 years? It was a lot, 10 yeah. years, something like that. So a, a really long period of time, right? So, I mean, really establishing that as a franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can thank this episode of Murder, She Wrote for We can that. thank it for, murder, for the success of Law & Order. Because, I mean, he wasn't in the original cast, but he did become, like, after... Four, I think, seasons he joined. Some, he was pretty early on. But, yep. I mean, there's no question, like, the Sam Waterston, Lenny Briscoe age of Law & Order was the golden age of that show. So I, I will join you in attributing the success of, you know, one of TV's longest-running dramas to Murder, She Wrote. And, of course, this would have been his first time working with Angela Lansbury, but a few years later. Oh, you want to pick up from there? Few years oh, of course, later. Yes. Of course, they would be in Beauty and the Beast together as Lumiere and Mrs. Potts, you know, the candelabra and the, you know, the teapot. It's lovely. I just, I love these different connections that Murder, like Murder Show is one of those shows I think it's like the hinge upon which so much pop culture can revolve. Yeah. And I think it's aware of that and had so much fun with all of those references. Like, as we said, the references to the Maltese Falcon here. Mm-hmm. Um, this episode, we actually we in the we in the academic world call that intertextuality. <laughs> we we in this episode we bump from Boston to Cabot Cove to upstate New York to Vermont to back to Boston back to Cabot Cove. So we're kind of everywhere in this, which is a little bit unusual for a film noir story mm-hmm. or a hard boiled detective novel. But the moment that we're in Cabot Cove, we also see that Jessica now has a pet bird, and it's mm-hmm. of course a yellow canary, which references her. Um, was it her first? No, Gaslight was her first. This was her second mm-hmm. movie role in uh, The Picture of Dorian Gray, where she sings mm-hmm. Goodbye Little Yellowbird, which she'll sing as Emma McGill in an upcoming episode. But I, again, it's that it's just a brief moment. It's never mm-hmm. explained why she suddenly has a bird and like who takes care of this bird because she hasn't been in Cabot Cove for like 10 episodes. Presumably Ethan. Presumably. Yeah, we haven't seen him for like 10 episodes either. But um, it's it's like it's so there just for us because we know Lansbury's film history, mm-hmm. right? I love that. I mean, that's I that's what I just 
I love a doing this podcast with you, um, just to do these deep dives, but B because you do all the research, and so a lot of this is revelation to me, even sometimes. So. He loves doing this podcast with me. Did you pick up on that, you guys? Because I do all the work <laughs> in doing the research. She doesn't do all of the work. <laughs> he just shows up and is fabulous. Well, that's hey, that takes a lot of work. I'll, I'll have you know, it is not effortless. <laughs> it is not effortless. I just make it look that way. <laughs> But anyway. So let's talk about the case. So the case that Jessica has having researched is, uh, we're just told over and over again, it's called the Danbury Scalpel murder case. Mm-hmm. It's and it actually, ad nauseum. Yeah, they just keep telling us that. Like, like at, at first I was like, is this a thing I'm supposed to know? Am I supposed to know the Danbury Scalpel murder case? No, it's something totally invented for this episode. We've never heard of it before in the series, and it's not a real thing. And it actually uh, was a, a, a bit of a red herring. Mm-hmm. It just turns out that um, somebody killed a guy who had sexually assaulted his sister, and a judge helped cover it up. Yep. And Jessica, my, my, it sounds like Jessica was having the, a private investigator research it um, as possibly to write a book. That's what, But yeah. that makes me wonder if she's writing true crime. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, I was like, when I got that part of the plot where she used the one who was employed, the, the PI, and I was like, I understand maybe she's heavily fictionalizing the story, but that's a lot of research to go into for like yeah. a novel. And expense. Yeah. yeah. This is not the first time that we hear her thinking about a real life case mm-hmm. to turn into a book. So I think sometimes the series is just confused as to what kind of writer she is. I would say that's probably accurate. Plus, the judge is like, also, you should know about our libel laws. Because, you know, she would be coming, like, putting her toe in the line. But on the, at the same time, it's not that unusual for authors to use real-life inspirations for... Maybe maybe it was just going to be loosely inspired by... Sure, in the way that, you know, that... Uh, and the, then fictionalized. Right, the way that Christie's The Mirror Cracked is loosely based on Jean Tierney's, like, daughter. So, you know... Maybe that's what she- I love how you just throw that out. Like, everybody knows that. Um, we also have the Priscilla plot line. So Barbara right. Bac- Bac- Babcock's character, Priscilla, which is not a red herring. It actually ends up being what contributed to Archie's death. So she runs a magazine called Femininity, which is about the modern woman. And she's contemplating a Senate seat, but had, it turns out, she was the one who hired Archie to research her own past, to do opposition research on herself to see what would get dug up if she ran for the Senate seat. And, of course, he discovered the abortion, uh, so it would come out, so she can't run for the Senate seat. Yeah, I was, I, I mean, when I was watching it, I was just, I was stunned. I mean, first of all, I was stunned, maybe, I just, is my own ignorance, but hearing the, the A word, like, just non, relatively nonchalantly mentioned, I was just like, whoa, like, what the, what just happened? That's actually a really good point because often we talk about pregnancies and we talk about uh, in, in 80s TV, um, they would have said like pregnancy and they would have said like mm-hmm. taking care of it or some sort of euphemism, but they actually say abortion. Right. And it just right out there like several times. And like, and what struck me was twofold. One, and I, I thought this was very good that she didn't show com- like compunction about it she didn't seem morally like vexed it was because she was a young graduate student and was sleeping with a professor which is that's a whole different set we can talk about that's that. another thing we need to we yeah. can talk about that because i was like yeah a married professor yeah i was just like god what is with these horny professors in this show which unfortunately is not that not different it's not doesn't take that much fictionalizing but anyway but also what struck me was that jessica also took it in stride and did not offer up a condemnation. I thought that was really because that carries weight. 
Yeah. Nowhere in this episode are we supposed to question this choice. Are we supposed to regret this choice? Never. It's just, it's a fact it happened. Yep. And I love that. It was a choice that, that Priscilla and uh, her now husband, she married the guy ultimately. It's a choice they made. And at first we see a bit of friction between them, but it turns out actually they love each other. They're in this choice together. They know they've made it. And they're um, long distance. They're still married. They're long distance. Like yeah. She's running out, you know, her powerful magazine empire, and he's a teacher at some small college. Like, I I actually think they're one of the nicer couples that we see in Murder, She Wrote, because they managed to make this life for themselves that is actually quite true to life in its own um, strange way. Yeah, and well, and she's supposed to be this sort of modern 80s feminist, right, running this magazine, and I, I love that. Part of Jessica's investigation is that she is like, I'll, you know what, I'm going to tell her that I'm going to write a piece for her magazine because they've been asking me. And that'll get me in the door and I'll get to investigate her. And her plan is to write this really sort of sweet grandmotherly essay about how much she loved her dead husband, mm-hmm. which is so not obviously the tone of this magazine <laughs> at all. Yes, I like, they obviously are asking her as, like, a, a very successful woman, mm-hmm. right, with a career. And she's like, I just want to write about how much I loved Frank. And you guys, if you if you'd known him, you would know what a great guy he was. I was like, it's so striking. And she sure. needs it, too. It's not, like, a line of shit just to get in the door to talk yeah, to this woman. She, she, she's sincere. Right. That's, it, but it's just so textbook Jessica to, you know, to use, to, to use every weapon at her disposal to disarm people around her. Well, yeah, and it's like... Uh, you could tell us anything about how hard you have worked to become a world-famous novelist post-retirement. Um, but what she really wants to talk about is how much she loved her husband. Like, that's so Jessica. It's really sweet. And it's so cunning, though, because the brilliance of Jessica, she realizes that the truth to being able to, to deception is having just a kernel of the real authentic truth to it and you can be amazed at what you get people to believe didn't i thought she was 100 percent sincere i didn't think it was just a plan sure i'm I, I, no i'm not saying it isn't i'm saying that this that's the brilliance though is that the sincerity mm. grounds the deception because and she knows that that's what i'm saying but that doesn't mean that she's not also sincere like it can be both maybe i'm just a liar and have no morals maybe that's where i'm actually i'm a terrible actually i'm a terrible liar so that's not true um it, it, you also have no morals. But this is uh, Barbara Babcock will be in five total episodes of Murder, She Wrote, so that's really fun. And her husband, Frank McMartin, or as you said, Father Leahy from the Golden Girls, he'll be in four episodes. And then our we have so much happening in this episode because we also have another plot line with right. Ernest Santini, who's played by Alex Rocco. You know him best from The Godfather, but he's also in The Golden mm-hmm. Girls, and he'll do two episodes of Murder, She Wrote. And he plays some guy who's sort of supposed to be mafia-esque. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's being investigated to find out if he's cheating on his wife, but actually it turns out he deeply loves his wife, and he's and just surprising her with a boat. But that got destroyed in the storm, so he's, like, had to, like, save an enormous amount of money to, like, rebuild this boat that she loved, which is just, it's, like, if you'll excuse the expression, it's one of those nice little grace notes that Murder, She Wrote excels at using. (laughs) Okay. All right. Yep. Um, So there you go. And our killer is Ray, who's the accountant at the office. He's in four episodes. Gerald... Gerald O'Loughlin, he's in four episodes of Murder, She Wrote. So it's a, this is like a repertory episode. I mean, we don't have a repertory cast, but essentially we do because all these people keep coming back. Right. And so let's talk about then about the the murderer, because I did find him to be like, 
and enormously unpleasant. Like, I, well, I thought the reveal was really well done. Like, I loved the, the way that, you know, that part of what pieced it all together was the jingling of the keychain. Mm-hmm. Like, that was, I, I thought that was a lovely way. So, and I was just to on, explain, though, so Archie was dictating uh, the uh, case notes the night he was shot. And so on right. the tape, they can hear the jingling of keys, and then Archie calls out, hello, who's there? Then he gets shot. And so that becomes a really important clue uh, and so when Ray has to open the office door and he has this big bulky keychain with tons of keys on it and it jingles, that's when Jessica realizes it was him. Yep. And I thought that was a brilliant, like, one of those really well done moments that Murder Shrew every so often does. And it makes, because it makes sense. It's not like the telephone episode where we're off to murder the wizard or, you know, whatever. That, that left us both puzzled <laughs> as to, like, how this pieces together. But that is a clue that really makes a lot of sense. When <laughs> he rewired all of the phones. <laughs> that was the best, best nonsense ever. My only question <laughs> about this, though, is uh, I think how we, ca- I think what the clues were and how we caught Archie, totally believe my question, is, or Ray, sorry. Um, my question, though, is what 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 was Ray thinking? So Ray killed Archie in order to hide Priscilla's file, so that he could blackmail Priscilla directly, and she was in fact being blackmailed. Um, but I guess my question is like, this is a private investigator firm. Mm-hmm. Surely, the entire existence of this firm is that they have clients with secrets, right? And they find out things about people. Why now? Why Priscilla? Right. There could have, he could have been blackmailing anyone at any time. Like, why kill Archie over this? That is a good question. But maybe he was just tired of the, as you know, maybe like Orbach realizing that television was more reliable as far as an income. He realized that, you know, blackmailing for one large chunk of money would be much more profitable than continuing to labor away as a private investigator. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. I mean, that's just a possible. Mm-hmm. These are the things that go. Th- I mean, I'm not a murderer that we know of. But, you know. You guys, I need to explain because you don't know TJ. Like, TJ would not kill a spider. Uh, That is true. He would, like, scream if he saw a spider. So, like, when he says things like, I'm not a murderer, probably. Like, please take that with a grain of salt. (laughs) And this is why I love this woman as a podcast co-host. She knows how to to keep me on the straight and narrow. (laughs) Not the straight. Never the straight. Not the straight. Not really narrow narrow either. (laughs) I know how to keep each other on the queer and wide, Teach. I'm not going to touch that one with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> um, let's talk about Priscilla's house. Can we talk yes. about Priscilla's house? Because Jessica goes over there late at night to talk to Priscilla to find out if she's being blackmailed. Because she notices a little strip of paper has been torn mm-hmm. out of her file and thinks it contains some juicy info. And, in fact, it did because Jessica always puts together clues in these totally bizarre ways that don't actually make sense. But we get to Priscilla's house, and it is supposed to be a rich, modern, successful feminist's house, but it is the most hideous house I've ever seen in my life. Yes. It, it was, looks uh, like chain-link fence covering the staircase, and then everything <laughs> is white with these, like, hot pink lights in the niches. It's bad. I mean, even by AD standards, I was like, what is going on with this house? <laughs> yeah. Like... Come on. I mean, if you're supposedly this high-powered, you know, magazine mogul, like, can you please at least hire an interior decorator who knows what to do? God, I think she did, though. That's the thing. I think she hired some, like, super modern, you know, decorator who was, like... old-fashioned. 
Yeah, maybe I'm old-fashioned, too, because I think, just, like, let's cover the stairwell and chain-link fence and spray-paint it white, to me, is just not really an aesthetic that I want in my house. I want a J.B. Fletcher aesthetic. That's what I want. <laughs> like, I want a nice J.B. Fletcher house, which, I mean, my house is a huge old country home, so I could easily make it into a J.B. Fletcher kind of arrangement, because that's, that, that's the me. That's the, the old, maybe it's the old lady in both of us that's just rebelling against this. I am not an old lady, and I do not have old lady aesthetic. Thank you very much. Mm, I didn't say you were an old lady. I said there's an old lady in all of us, in both of us. Harry says that he read Jessica's book and was bored out of his mind, and he says this directly to her face. People are going to think there was, like, a weird edit there, but there wasn't. I literally just did a jump cut to a totally new topic after the old lady thing. And she's trying to deflect. That's what she's doing. But, yes. But, I mean... (laughs) That is very much in keeping with his personality. Like, but this, I just love this character. Like the moment when he dresses up as like a, as an oil, like a Texas oil man. Well, I had vibes of like, of uh, pillow talk, but it just was one of those glorious moments where you could tell Orbach is having the time of his life right now. Yeah. So, so explain that, that moment. Right. Cause he's, well, at this point he has a black eye from his encounter with like Santini. So he's like feigning like this disguise to get in with, um, Barbara Babcock's character and so you know he's pretending to be something that he's not and he so he picks to be like this Texan rich Texan cowboy so he can talk to her about placing ads in the magazine and then he says something along the lines of like someone said something about my mother that I didn't agree with or something (laughs) like ridiculous I just was like this is I mean that's what I loved about this episode is it was just so much fun like obviously you know there's always there's that sinister it's the fun side of noir like i think that obviously Mm -hmm. there's the sort of sinister side which i referenced earlier with uh with the secretary that we talked about several weeks ago this is the more like almost it's not quite screwball but it's just on the like this side of like the screwball part of film noir where there's like you know all this snappy dialogue and people trading barbs with each other that can be just fun to listen to and to watch and I think that that's something this episode really captures quite well. In part, I think, because of the really strong chemistry between JB and Harry. Like, they just seem to, they really bounce off each other. Like, he's always breaking into her house and then to her hotel room. And she's like, breaking in, it's getting to be a habit with you. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. and it's so different because remember, like, what was his name? David was doing the same thing, but she was so, like, revolted This by is it. in, uh, he's talking about lovers and other killers when her grad student assistant, David, breaks into her hotel room and is waiting for her when she gets there and it's repeatedly it's freaky she's freaked out she says don't ever do that again we're supposed to be freaked out he's creepy and sinister and here uh you know she's out riding her bike and comes home and harry's like in her house like digging through her stuff and she's just like right what are you doing like and she knows that he's there it's kind of like, innocuous so yeah so I, it's a lovely inverse image in so many ways those two these two episodes like the sort of the, the duality of noir as a genre and as a sensibility. I think you can absolutely tell that everyone working on this episode had fun. Um, and I mm-hmm. think that you can tell that Peter Fisher had fun writing it. And the fact that Jessica and Harry are so different and we're, they're, they're at odds, right? They're each investigating and racing to the solution. And Harry uh, wants to find Archie's killers so that he can kill them. Mm-hmm. And the police are kind of okay with that because Archie did some training for the police and they know and they knew him and loved him. And Jessica actually goes to the police lieutenant and is like, listen, this guy's trying to take the law in his own hands. And the police lieutenant's like, we're kind of going to let him. Uh, Paul Winfield, no less. Yeah. So, so you know, they're really at odds in, in mm-hmm. terms of the narrative. Uh, and yet you can see how this would plant the seeds for a friendship that 
Then over the course of the rest of the series, when Harry comes back, he's always uh, as Jessica's friend, as her, as someone helping her work cases, as someone she's like, oh, God, you are such trouble, but I love you. Mm-hmm. And you can see the mm-hmm. seeds of that here. Mm, that sounds like a dynamic that I'm very familiar with. <laughs> the, the brisk, no-nonsense woman and the, you know, kind of free-flowing, more, you know, relaxed approach sounds very familiar don't you think it does just a little bit um but you have yet to get a black eye i've never seen you with a black eye well let's hope let's uh, let's hope that doesn't happen i'm not i haven't planned on you know stalking any gangsters to see if they are having an affair <laughs> as of yet so i love so. that whole thing because like, you think they're gonna kill harry uh you know because he's following them around and he thinks they're doing something illegal down at the docks and like all they do is give him a black eye and say leave us alone and jessica's like they obviously didn't kill Archie. If they wanted to, you know, if they killed Archie, they would have killed you. They just gave you a right. black eye and said, go away. Like, they're, they're not, they're they're fine. They're not trouble. I mean, they're dock workers. Like, you know, come on now. I mean, what do you expect? Yeah. And then that the solution is like, I'm just trying to surprise my wife with a boat. Like, it's it's great. It's just really I mean, it's a, fun. Right. It's a lovely, like, inversion of what of expectations. Given yeah. how many times this episode, this, or sorry, this season, yes, we've seen kind of like brutal patriarchs get their comeuppance. It's kind of nice to see someone who would fit into that stereotype very easily because of his already existing star text, you know, and the kind of character that he seems to be portraying. There's a nice little inversion of that, which I think is a nice little, you know, not I want to say use grace note because I've already said that, but a nice little, you know, a little, uh, a little moment, shall we say. That's probably a good place to wrap this up. Yeah, I, like I said, you know, I think that, as I said to Bridget in the pregame, this is one of those nice bread and butter episodes that has a nice few twists and turns, but it's a pretty solidly built episode that I very much enjoy. Highly recommend 10 out of 10, Tough Guys Don't Die. Which isn't, unfortunately, in this case, they do. <laughs> so for this week's episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, I'm Bridget Keys, And I am TJ West. And we'll see you next time. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.